Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including 13 magazine-style stories in our first three months, plus lots of free posts as well. That's grantwall.com to get my posts in your email inbox the second they go out. Gift subscriptions are also available. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. Our first guest in this episode will be my wife, Dr. Celine Gounder, an infectious disease specialist about the latest COVID Omicron surge. Segment two will be my interview with Amanda Vandervoort, the president of the USL Super League, the new women's second division starting in 2023. Then in segment three, I'll bring in Chris Whittingham to talk U.S. men's national team and Tottenham Liverpool. Let's go. With the Omicron variant spreading in places around the world, our guest now is my wife. Dr. Celine Gounder is an infectious disease specialist, an epidemiologist, and an NYU professor who works at Bellevue Hospital. She was a member of the president's transition COVID-19 advisory board, and she hosts two podcasts, Epidemic and American Diagnosis. Celine, thanks for coming back on the show. Good to be here. So we're a sports podcast, as you know, and sports are dealing with Omicron a lot, just as society is. We saw six Premier League games postponed over the weekend. The NBA and NFL are dealing with it, too. We're speaking Sunday morning, December 19th. What have we learned so far about Omicron? So there are three main characteristics that we really focus on uh, with the virus, with the variants. So one, is it more infectious? So does it spread more easily from person to person? Another way to think about that is if you are infected, how many other people are you likely to go on and infect? And there is no question Omicron is more infectious, even more infectious than uh, Delta, which was previously the most infectious variant to date. Uh, So that makes Omicron a real concern because it is spreading rapidly through the population. The second characteristic we worry about is immune evasion. So how well does immunity from a prior infection or immunity from vaccination protect you against infection with Omicron? We are seeing that uh, so-called natural immunity or immunity from a prior infection is really not protective against Omicron. And the vaccines do seem to be still offering protection um, against infection up to a point. But we are seeing that even people who have been triple vaccinated with Pfizer and Moderna are having breakthrough infections with Omicron. I think the key message here is that those infections are very mild. They're not landing people in the hospital. They're, they're more like the common cold. Uh, so the vaccines continue to protect very well against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Then the third characteristic we worry about is virulence. So virulence is how severe of disease does a virus cause in the individual who's infected. And the jury's still out on that one. There's some initial data out of South Africa um, that indicated maybe Omicron might be uh, less virulent, causing less severe disease. But there's also data out of the UK that suggests that's not necessarily the case. So we still really need to see more data before coming to a conclusion on that one. 
Part of the challenge with virulence is that we don't intentionally infect people. We can't do a randomized clinical trial infecting people and seeing, is this causing more severe disease or not? You just have to wait to see how it plays out in the population, and that does take some time. Final thing I would just say about that um, is that even if this uh, Omicron variant is no more virulent than prior variants, uh, just by the sheer fact that it is infecting so many more people, you can still end up with a lot of hospitalizations and deaths, particularly among people who are not vaccinated. So the Omicron threat really should be taken very seriously. I mean, that leads to my next question, which is we're seeing a lot of people, including here in New York City, who are vaccinated and boosted, who are getting breakthrough Omicron infections. What do you say to anyone who says this must mean the vaccine and boosters aren't working well? I think we've been expecting too much of the vaccines. We've been expecting perfection. Um, it would be like saying seatbelts uh, don't prevent all injuries and in car accidents, so seatbelts are useless. The vaccines are working very well at protecting against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And after all, we vaccinate to prevent severe disease, not to prevent the common cold. So if people are having mild breakthrough infections, the sniffles, that sort of thing, maybe even what seems like a case of the flu, so some chills and fever. If they're not landing up in the hospital, if this is not causing lung damage and other organ damage, but really just a mild infection, um, that's really still a win that the vaccines are having such a tremendous impact. So as I understand it, you would much rather prefer on a population level that the administration and public health officials focus less on the number of COVID cases and more on the number of hospitalizations and deaths from COVID. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think we need to shift our targets. We, we set the goalposts um, at an impossible uh, place for success. The vaccines are doing a great job at protecting against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. That should have been the target all along. And, and hey, look at New York City. So New York City, we are heading into a COVID surge. Uh, much of this driven by Omicron. But New York City uh, is one of the most highly vaccinated places in the country. Over 70% of New Yorkers are vaccinated. And to put this in perspective, um, what was the impact of COVID early in the pandemic in New York in spring of 2020 before we had vaccines? At Bellevue Hospital, where I worked at the peak, we had over 600 COVID patients in the hospital. Today, we have about 30. And that is because even though the virus is spreading across the city right now, the cases that we're seeing are pretty mild because so many New Yorkers are vaccinated. So, you know, I, I think it's really important to understand the people who are landing in the hospital are people who are not vaccinated by and large. One reason I have not wanted to get COVID, even a mild case, you know, even as someone who's vaxxed and boosted like me, it's because I don't want to have the possibility of getting long COVID. What do we know about the impact of vaccines and boosters on the chances of getting long COVID, even if you get a breakthrough infection? Well, there's data out of the UK, for example, looking at people who had infections who were not vaccinated and people who had infections, uh, breakthrough, so-called breakthrough infections, who were vaccinated. And we do see at least a 50% reduction in odds of getting long COVID if you are vaccinated and then have an infection. But I think this goes back to what many of us public health officials have been saying, that you cannot have a 
vaccine-centric or overly vaccine-focused policy if your goal is to prevent all infections and to prevent long COVID. You really do have to layer other measures. And I know that's very frustrating that people want a silver bullet of, hey, I got my vaccine. I don't have to worry about any of these things anymore. And that's unfortunately not the case right now. So yes, absolutely get vaccinated. That's what will protect you against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. But if what you really want to do is also uh, minimize your risk of an infection in long COVID, the vaccines are not going to do that. We're already seeing waning immunity among people um, who've had a third dose. Even before Omicron, the Israelis were looking at giving fourth doses as a result. Um, and, and we're going to be chasing our tails giving boosters every six months or so if we're trying to use vaccines to prevent all infections in long COVID. So at least for now, we do need to be doing things like masking, I would say um, an N95 respirator or a KN95 or KF94 mask. You can order um, uh, the right masks from projectn95.org. They have been vetting the quality of, of the materials. I know there's a lot of knockoffs you can get on Amazon, but that's a reliable place to order masks from. We also need to be socializing outdoors as much as the weather allows, as much as is possible. And um, if you're indoors, open doors and windows, create a cross breeze, Get yourself one of those HEPA air filtration units. Put those in uh, rooms where maybe family and friends are congregating, like uh, living rooms, dining rooms, kitchens, and the like. Um, and then finally, make use of rapid testing. Uh, the jury's still out on how well the rapid tests are working for Omicron, but Delta is still the dominant strain, at least for now, in the United States. And uh, rapid tests are performing very well for the Delta variant. Do a rapid test first thing in the morning. If you're negative, that's a day when you can more safely, I won't say perfectly safely, but more safely drop your mask when you're indoors with family and friends, uh, especially over the holidays. Um, and, and that's really how to be using those rapid tests. And just to be clear, the, these are the things that you want you and I to be doing when we travel to Kansas City on Monday and spend the next six days with our family for Christmas, correct? That's right. So our family, as you know, is fully vaccinated and boosted with the exception of my our niece, uh, Delphine, who's six. Uh, she um, just got double vaccinated, so she's not yet eligible to be boosted. And our niece, uh, Adele, who is two years old, she is not yet eligible to be vaccinated. So everybody else is, is vaccinated and, and fully boosted. Um, we will be wearing N95 masks while we travel. Um, and I have already ordered a bunch of rapid tests to be sent to my sister's home so that we can rapid test every morning. I guess lastly here, because we are a sports podcast, the sports world has been pretty helpful, actually, with helping all of us learn more about the virus over the last couple of years. Could you explain some of that? So I think the sports world um, really has contributed to our scientific knowledge, especially around things like testing. Uh, they're a pretty unique setting. So uh, many of the leagues have been testing their players and staff very frequently, in some cases once a day or even multiple times a day. And they've been doing so with different types of tests, uh, PCR tests, saliva, as well as nasal swabs, uh, rapid tests. And so they have that data, that wealth of data on serial testing with multiple tests at the same time, where you can make cross comparisons. You can also assess 
how quickly a new variant is spreading through their population. So I think, you know, the, the sports world has really uh, contributed a tremendous amount to our fight against COVID over the last two years. I guess lastly here, I also just want to say thank you because I know that you're going back into Bellevue Hospital to work on December 27th, uh, all through New Year's and the start of the new year. And uh, you've been working seven days a week now for just about two years on all this stuff, doing different things. And I just really am proud of you and appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) You know, sometimes I feel like uh, I'm the Scrooge passing on these uh, dire messages or depressing um, bits of advice. But, you know, I, I think if we would all just pitch in, do our part, we really could get to the other side of this. Our guest now is one of the most impressive people I've met in American soccer. Amanda Vandervoort is the president of the USL Super League, a second division women's pro league set to debut in 2023. She also has one of the most varied and intriguing backgrounds in the sport from player to coach to executive that you will ever see. Amanda, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Good. Thanks. What an intro. Thanks for that. I uh, back at you, my friend. Well, I've known you for a really long time, and I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast making your debut. And I'm really excited to hear about what you're doing as the president of the USL Super League and what it's about and where you are right now in the preparation. So could you fill me in a little bit? Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm so happy to be there, to be here. I know we've talked about uh, being on the pod for a while, Grant. So to be in this place and be president of the USL Super League and get to share with you what, what we're building um, at the USL is, is just a delight. And uh, so, yeah, let me give you a little kind of overview. Um, we're, we're launching the USL Super League, which will be professional division two status, professional league here in the United States in 2023. We plan to have 10 to 12 teams um, and, uh, and, and yeah, launch that league in 23. A little, a little broader scope too. the USL across all the women's soccer properties in 2022. Um, 2022, we're launching the the W League, which is our pre-professional league, um, and the academy as well. So what we're really building is a, a pathway for women and girls across, you know, all levels of, of the soccer ecosystem. For the Super League, how many cities do you know that you're in? How many do you still want to figure out? Yeah, well, we're going to start announcing um, Q1 next year. So you'll start to see those cities start to roll out. Um you know, we're looking at 10 to 12 markets uh, across across the country. I think I think the big um, the big goal for us here is is to to increase the opportunities for women and and girls to to be involved in soccer, in particular professional soccer. You know, today there's 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 going to be in this this coming year there'll be 12 pro teams in this country. But when you look at the the gap between the number of playing opportunities and actually the playing pool of women in America and around the world, it's vast. We know there's at least 40,000 players in the collegiate system on the women's side. Now that's D1, D2, D3, NAIA and and through the mix. Um, But that's a substantial number for only, you know, 250-ish professional jobs today. So we want to close that gap. You know, the other thing to, to, to know about the women's soccer landscape and, and us um, coming into this space, there's seven times more men's professional teams in America today than there are women. 
but the playing numbers are, are pretty even. So actually we're, we're coming into this to create these opportunities for players, which I just addressed, but executives and coaches and really prof- helping professionalize the game in this country that much further. No, that makes total sense. I, is, I, you know, are existing USL men's pro teams going to be connected to the teams in the women's super league? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, so we just had our winter summit, the USL winter summit, which, um, was this last week, um, here in, here in Tampa, Florida. And we had all of our owners and executives come together to really talk about the future of women's soccer. I mean, among other USL, you know, key topics across the board, but certainly, women's soccer and, and the launch of the USL Super League and the W League and our, our pathway was was a huge topic. So yeah, you'll certainly see um, our ownership group, um, you know, really excited and, and getting behind the, the women's Super League and, and we'll certainly see teams aligned with our men's side. I mean, do you expect that we talk about this pathway that this could potentially even end up producing future players for the US women's national team? Yeah, absolutely. I think producing future play. I mean, you know, we need to give we need to give women and girls a space to play. We know that when we do create access and opportunity for women and girls to play, they do and they excel. And, um, you know, listen, Grant, we can look back to the establishment of 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 Title nine in this country and, and what it did to create opportunities for women to play college soccer. And I think you know, when you create the space, they play. And, and when we professionalize the game and create opportunities for players, as they will in the USL Super League, being able to play elite professional soccer, um, it, will, it will only advance, advance the game in this country. And it, yeah, it would be an honor and a dream to, to be part of, of that path for, for players in this country, certainly. So when you talk about professional soccer, that means players are getting paid. Um, what kind of standards are there going to be in your league for, I guess, you know, minimum salaries, living wages, things like that? Yeah, I think we're in a really fortunate position right now because we just completed the CBA negotiations on the men's side with our championship division. Um, and there was a lot of work put into that and a lot of thought. Um, and so what, what we're committing to on the women's side is comparable, the same standards that we've agreed to on the men's side with the CBA in the championship division, division two professional level standards will be the same for the USL Super League. And, and we're committed to that across the board. Nice. Um, and just what's your day to day like your job as you're preparing for all this? Yeah. Wow. My job, um, is incredibly varied. I actually think that's one of the reasons I was so compelled by this role, Grant, is because, you know, my background in soccer stretches from executive management to being a player. It stretches from digital social media content to being the head of the Global Players Union for women, right? So, um, so my day-to-day touches a lot of those different areas and, and I, that's what I find so compelling and also so challenging. You know, I might be with our, um, CEO, Alec Papadakis, um, talking about his like innate drive to build the women's property and his true belief in, in equality and, and building this league and, and the standards therein to, you know, meetings with, um, you know, with, with our designers and our content team about, you know, how do we talk about 
the future of the women's game or talk about uh, women in the men's game? Like, what does the evolution of, of that conversation look like? And, and how do we um, engage and inspire people around this around this platform? So, yeah, it's it's great. It's it's varied and, and it's challenging and it's really, really exciting. So we see on the men's side, there's a real kind of a relationship between the USL and MLS, the the first division league. Is there going to be something like that between USL Super League and the NWSL? Well, I think we're all building the women's game together. You know, it's a it's a great question and a great opportunity for us to look at uh, where do we want the women's game to be 10 years from now, 15 years. I, I think this actually about the game as a whole, women's and men's soccer. Where do we want to see the game 10 years from now? And then how do we build to get there, right? And we're how do we build within our business, within our league, creating the opportunities for players, coaches, executives, partners, owners, investors in the game, um, in you know, in driving this collective vision for for access opportunity and the professionalization of the game. Because you have such an interesting soccer background, I, I want to get into your story because I think our listeners will find it as interesting as I do. Um, how do you get connected to soccer in the first place? Oh, I played. I played as a kid. Um, I played as a kid in AYSO. I grew up in the Arizona youth soccer system. I mean, that was back in the days when ODP, you know, camps were, I was part of like the, you know, when you bring together the different states, like there were like two kids from Wyoming, two kids from Arizona. Of course, California had four teams of themselves at ODP camp. Um, Because historically, they've always been so strong. But um, yeah, so I, I was a I was a player. I played in college, um, and I just I just fell in love with the sport and and everything it gave me as a kid. You know, I mean, I had I I I, I had a challenging childhood, and and soccer was my escape. Soccer was my um, I don't know. It was where I made my friends. It was where I learned leadership skills. It was all those things to me. So yeah, I mean, fast forward a couple of years and here I am now being in a I'm in a position a to create those opportunities for others but um but also be able to to you know deliver deliver a um yeah deliver on that opportunity that I had and give back to the game I'm not gonna let you fast forward over all that we're gonna move (laughs) back we're gonna rewind um how did you go into like did you go from playing into coaching or is there something in between? Okay. No, I played at the University of Wyoming and I went to New Jersey where I was a graduate assistant. So I was the GA at the College of New Jersey, which is a division three, very successful soccer program in central Jersey. Um, and from there, I spent two years there doing my studies in educational technology, which is what I have my master's degree in. Um, and then I went to NYU in uh in new york where i was the head coach um for for a couple years before i went to to california to help launch women's pro soccer so um yeah i know i went i i stayed in like playing i went into coaching but then i knew i knew that i wanted to be in the business of soccer um in my late 20s early 30s kind of period and i had just heard that women's professional soccer was was making a comeback and i i wanted to be involved in that i think when i f- first got acquainted with you was when you were to me like the social media sensei the guru the gold standard 
And did that come out of WPS? Yeah, 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 WPS. Well, I, I, I mentioned my master's degree is in educational technology, right? So teaching people how to integrate technology at my degree specifically in education. So it was teaching teachers how to integrate it. But I quickly, um, I guess, applied that skill set in soccer. So I was working with um, coaches, with C-suite executives in the game, trying to help, you know, uh, integrate social media and digital technologies and really see, like, actually, there's a really... um, we were in back then, it was the mid 2000s, and we were in like this incredible space where, you know, it was hard to get women's soccer news and information out publicly, but there was this thing called Twitter. So actually, in, in 2008, what we did was the first um, US Women's National Team player allocation. You might remember those days when we uh, distributed the, the, player, uh, the players among the, the WPS teams at the time. And it was really hard to get traditional media to cover us. So we said, you know what, let's use this Twitter thing. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it, it was great. I mean, within a couple of months, we had 250,000 people on our Twitter account. Um, the players were, were all getting on board with social media and really like driving this, um, I don't know, just this awareness and excitement around women's professional soccer um, authentically and organically through their own voices on social. And it, I mean, my my path in soccer really paralleled, I think, the growth of, of the social media industry. And, and it's no surprise to me why that is. You were with MLS for a number of years as well, right? I was at MLS. So I, I um, that the WPS folded in, in 2011. It was about that time I started working at MLS. I came over to lead the social media strategy actually back then. And then that grew over my decade with MLS. It grew into, um, you know, digital media and content. Specifically, I did a lot of work on direct to consumer marketing. So how do we, anything, when I was there at any point, if you got something on your email or your cell phone, you got a text message, um, that would have come from my team. So anything that came out direct to consumer. My last two, yeah, my last two years, actually, I was doing more work on the research side. So I would travel to all, all the clubs around the country and sit down with all the club presidents and their staff, their executive team, and work on uh, growing the fan base. So how do you engage fans in your local community? Why is it that they're engaging and what is it that we can do to, to help, um, help fans really connect with the game in your city? But then you've had this international aspect to a lot of the work that you've done and what has that included? How did that get going? Oh yeah. Well, we've only, I mean, I feel like we've gone in a a little bit of a linear fashion about my career, which is great. Uh, but concurrently I was, I stayed, so I was a coach, but I never left coaching. I still feel really like coaching is, is close to my heart. So I, um, I served on the board of the soccer coaches, United Soccer Coaches, for, I don't know, 15 years. In 2016, I was the president of the Coaches Association. So I know that's domestic, not international, but um, I think that kind of works into the international conversation because I was also consulting for FIFA. So I would I was working on a project called Community Um um, I have a community development courses and we would go to countries around the world. I mean, we were in Tanzania. I was in Delhi, India, where we brought together like 12 countries from around the region to talk about women's soccer. We we're all across the Caribbean from St. Lucia to Jamaica to St. Kitts and Nevis. I mean, all, like all around doing these courses to help federations connect with both 
um, sponsors in their local communities, build women's soccer profile, developing marketing and strategic plans for their women's soccer properties. So I think the combination of both of those and my work with FIFA led me um, to this last summer after I left MLS in 2019, I went to France as, uh, and, and got a little spot in, uh, in, in Paris to spend my time at the Women's World Cup and really get to know the international space. I felt that I wanted to be both in the international space and women's soccer. And, you know, if there's one piece of advice I tell, I tell young aspiring executives, it's be where the people are that do the job you want to do. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't sure what the role would look like before I, I started with FIFPRO in the Global Players Union, but I knew that those were the elements that were important to me to have as part of it. So yeah, all of those pieces kind of led me towards working in Europe and moving in, and, and being part of the, the, the Global Player Union family at FIFPRO. What did you learn from that experience about what the global player on the women's side is experiencing? Well, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning of this call about the professionalization in this country and the professionalization of women's football around the world is something that it, I would say it's in its nascent stage still. I mean, if you look at a country like Italy, those the women in Italy weren't, weren't legally allowed to be professional players until just this year, right? And and now you've seen Juventus in the Champions League, right? Uh, moving on to the next round. So we're we're actually seeing that professionalization of the women's game has direct impact on the success of the athletes and the level of play that that they're, you know, able to achieve because they can spend their time crafting, you know, honing their craft as professional players. So I think Italy is an example, but we've seen um, whether it's, um, you know, how they respect uh, women's football um, with, I guess, equality kind of at the center in, in Scandinavia. And you're seeing all of the teams across Scandinavia qualify for European tournaments, which is tremendous. But I don't think that that's... Um, it's intentional. It's intentional because they're creating pathways and they're building programs to elevate the level of play and create access and opportunity for players to be pros. So I think that all wraps back into what we're building at the USL Super League, right? It's, it's the opportunity to compete as a professional at the elite level and, um, and, and hone your craft, be a pro. We're, we're, we're creating the league a league where players want to play and coaches want to coach. And I, I'm hopeful that my experience, you know, in the world of soccer, both here in America as a player, but then abroad as, as an executive in the game and having seen that, I'm hopeful to, you know, bring all that together and, and create um, a really dynamic league here in the States. When this league starts in 2023, how many of the games are going to be televised? Yeah, we're great question. Um, those are all discussions that we're working on now, right? I mean, you can imagine the space that we're in now. We're having, um, we're working with our ownership group to identify those markets and, um, you know, build build those fundamentals. For me, it's important that um, you know we're we're developing those in concert with our ownership group and making sure that that we're building out a strong foundation to launch in 2023. And so. Those are the kind of conversations that we're having um, that we're having now. 
I mean, are there any p- particular things that you specifically want to see in this league that we haven't talked about, like when it starts in 23? Well, we've talked about, um, you know, I mean, I want to see, I, I want to see great fan environments. Like I'm excited to help, um, you know, help create and, and curate this fan experience in, in the women's game that we see all over the world right now. I mean, if we go back to the international game and the experience that I've had, like if you see what's happening actually in Mexico right now, the fan base is down in Mexico. I mean, I know you've, you've seen it, Grant, right? What's happening in, in Sweden for a league game a couple of weeks ago was, was unreal. Um, you know, and in England, the numbers, even the FA Cup final just a couple of weeks ago was something, what was it, 55, 50,000, yeah. something like that. Um, and so, so creating these experiences where, where fans, um, where fans can express their passion for the women's game is, is something that, that I can't wait for. Amanda Vandervoort is the president of the USL Super League, a second division women's pro league set to debut in 2023. Amanda, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Grant. It was great. All right, let's bring in Chris Whittingham to talk a little soccer news. How are you, Chris? Doing all right. Excellent, excellent. Um, the, the year is winding down here. We're in the final day, so there's not as much happening on this side of the ocean, but there was a U.S. men's national team game, not a full FIFA window game, so not the full complement of players, obviously, but... It ended up with a positive result for the U.S., 1-0 with a late goal over Bosnia-Herzegovina. Cole Bassett, name we haven't used too often with the U.S. men's national team, getting the winner. Not the most memorable game. (laughs) No, no, it was not. There was not really a ton to report on. Um, I I thought, uh, in terms of observations, uh, the one thing that I I saw on Twitter from a few people, including Matt Doyle of MLSsoccer.com, was... When the young kids are used and when it's not the full national team camp, there is like a certain, they look very mechanical in their style of play. Like it's not perfect. I thought in the first 20 minutes they played well. There's a red card, which in a friendly, it it takes some doing. And it took some doing from the (laughs) Bosnia-Herzegovina player who went studs into the shin of Kellen Acosta uh, to earn himself a a red. So you get like the 50 minutes of playing against 10 men, not even full strength Bosnia-Herzegovina. And you're going, what even is the point of all this? But you got to see a few debuts. The younger players coming through are really interesting to me. Uh, I was a little disappointed that we can get Brian Reynolds from the start, given given how poor his run at Roma has gone. Jose Mourinho has basically banished him to the point where he could even come into this camp. I kind of wanted to see him start to maybe get his stock up for a January loan. Um, but love seeing Cade Cowell. He's one of the most entertaining players to watch week in, week out in MLS. Uh, love seeing Jonathan Gomez, who's on yeah. his way to Spain. Um, and really the first guy to really carry the, not the first guy, but among the first guys to carry the USL flag in into major into the U.S. men's national team. Obviously, Cole Bassett getting the goal. There's some fun players you want to see in a U.S. shirt probably after the 22 World Cup, but uh, in the end, not really a ton to take from this game. Yeah, Jonathan Gomez, though, is a guy I'm really excited about, so it was good to see him get some time on the field in a U.S. shirt. He had the shot that the rebound came back and Bassett finished. Um, so, yeah, that's exciting, actually. And, you know, you look at other performances it's good in my opinion to see jordan morris just out there again for the u.s because he is a guy who could be a contributor with the a squad especially once the qualifiers start up again so uh greg berhalter told the the fox folks that um he felt good about where jordan morris has been 
uh, during this camp. And, and, and that's a good sign because I think he is a player who can make a contribution. Um, and then who else? I mean, not, not too much, really. I mean, it's, I mean, Walker Zimmerman, I think is a guy who granted this wasn't like an A-level international game, but I think he's become a really commanding presence. Obviously in that situation, you really noticed it, but I think even when you're watching him, in the qualifiers and we noticed this when we were watching the game together uh in cincinnati that uh, he's one of those players where you can see especially in person how much of an impact he has on the game yeah it's fascinating to me because i i kind of like i think he's perfectly earmarked i don't know if he wants to move abroad but if he does he has championship defender written all over him because he is i would say one of the most impressive aerial presences that I've ever seen in person. Now, admittedly, my my in-person catalog is not as vast as I'd like for it to be, but just in terms of winning in the air, like the, the number of times he's come to Inter-Miami and won every header that's even anywhere near him, which is surprising because Nashville are actually pretty poor defending set pieces this season, but... He's great in the air. He's got that kind of physical presence. He just needs to improve with his distribution. That's ultimately what's held him back in his career. And the more he plays in the Burhalter system, the more he's trusted in games like, you know, home against Mexico and in these big qualifiers, I think the more he's going to earn the trust of the manager in that aspect of the game. But yeah, he's definitely won. Uh, Jordan Morris only started one game, I think, all season. It was the playoff game against Salt Lake. So you're right, like him building up fitness there is really important coming off of that knee injury probably should have scored and the other player that I think we should bring up is the other player who should have scored which is Ricardo Pepe because he missed an absolute sitter tried to redirect it towards the back and towards the back post instead of going with his left foot towards the near and it was pointed on the broadcast and it's true that he hasn't scored since the game against Jamaica and Austin that was like a little bit of a time ago. Hadn't really, you know, then, you know, picked up an injury, hasn't played much for FC Dallas, didn't score for FC Dallas, and then comes into this game. And in some ways, this game is kind of designed for him, Matt Turner, and Walker Zimmerman and Kellen Acosta to get a run out. And Pepe comes in against a team that isn't very good and couldn't score a goal. So uh, that would be the only concern coming out of the game as you head into January with a striker who will not have played that many games and is probably out of form at the moment. Yeah, I'd say that's true. I don't want to get too down on Pepe, but yeah, there's a concern there. And Mm -hmm. there's also a concern about what is his club situation going to be? Because now we see FC Dallas going publicly saying... Well, you know, we want to keep him until after the World Cup. And by the way, if he goes to Europe before the World Cup, that could cause him a problem with the U.S. men's national team. And I thought that was kind of lame for for FC Dallas ownership to put that out there about a player who's given them a lot uh, already. And so we'll see how that shakes out. But obviously, these next qualifiers are at the end of january and so that's not in mls season and so i do wonder how many mls guys burhalter's gonna start in that game and there are players like zimmerman like pepe like morris you know you just gotta wonder i mean how much you know sebastian legit maybe even um you know what kind of situation are they going to be in to potentially play or not but, uh, and, and who even who even is the backup if he doesn't pick Pepe in any of those games? I it was Jesus Ferreira in the last window. He's another MLS guy. Josh Sargent is as well Zardis, yeah. I mean, Sargent, but that's another guy who wouldn't have played in a lot of games in the intervening period. So, is there anyone who's based in Europe right now who you'd pick? I I, I don't Jordan think Pifak, so. I mean, maybe, maybe four yeah, goals Jordan, over Jordan. the weekend. Huh? 
Fair point. I mean, honestly, it might be him. He, he he might be the one if he can continue scoring goals like that. Although I presume, wouldn't they? I, you'd have to think they take a winter break in, in Switzerland, right? Uh, but anyway, uh, like you know, without without an obvious second option, I I don't know if they can afford to not start Pepe in any of those games. Yeah, no, that's a real question. Uh, I will say this, that obviously they're big games, but, you know, home against El Salvador and Honduras, the U.S. better get six points out of Mm -hmm. those games, no matter who's playing in them. The Canada game's obviously going to be a bit of a challenge. By the way, I just got my travel plans made for Canada, for uh, Hamilton, Ontario is where that game's taking place. Hotel prices are through the roof, Chris. <laughs> what? I, I, it, it's probably Ham- it's, uh, the biggest event that's happened in Hamilton in how long? When's have they have they hosted the uh, the CFL champ? Was that the Grey Cup? They hosted the yes. Grey Cup in Hamilton before. Yeah, that was a dumb idea too because like there's like three hotels. There's maybe a slight bit more in Hamilton, Ontario, but like the prices even for like pretty rudimentary hotels which is by the way where i stay on most of these things 300 400 a night so i'm not even doing that man like in hamilton's about an hour drive from toronto so i'm staying closer to toronto where prices are cheaper and renting a car but thanks canadian federation for putting this game in a (laughs) difficult location i talked to uh two people who do not follow soccer very much yesterday and i told them about where the next three u.s world cup qualifiers are in columbus minnesota and hamilton ontario in late january early february and they asked me what the hell is happening there it's like ah it's home field advantage i'm like i i I still don't know why those games aren't in la and miami i really don't and or vancouver for that matter i mean that's a good point yeah i mean just like we could have gone to decent weather locations for this time of year instead we're in the great white north which yeah is guaranteed i guarantee you there's going to be hazardous winter weather at at least one of those three games yes and maybe all three and we there's going to it. be those orange lines drawn for uh, the 18 yard box and there's going to be an orange ball it's going to be awful to watch but hopefully it it's a nine point window for the u.s who was it who told me u.s is going to feel really good about this when christian pulisic just blows up his hamstring in in the colds and yeah. they seem to be excited about it. I was like, that wouldn't be nice. But, like, I, honestly, I, I don't think it's good for anybody. No, uh, it's terrible. Um, let's also talk about England this weekend. Crazy game. Tottenham 2, Liverpool 2. Liverpool ends up with 10 men. Tottenham should have. Uh, didn't. Harry Kane somehow avoids it. Um, and, and that's the big, I guess, talking point coming out of the game. Though I, I would also say that just a really fun game in a lot of ways. And you come away from it thinking Antonio Conte already having an impact with Spurs. Yeah, it's one of those where you knew that the World Feed Premier League commentators are going to say, that's a great advert for the Premier League. <laughs> like, you, you just knew. And, and, and they're right. It was, it was a really fun game. And I like the fact that Spurs are legit again. It's it's one of those teams where now they're on the they're on the schedule for a big game and you're excited about it because under Nuno that certainly was not the case although they did beat City on the opening day uh, and then the Jose Mourinho you just knew where it was heading towards the end 
and the, the, that was a dire, dire watch. And while Antonio Conte's teams are not brilliant to watch, uh, they can certainly turn on the stop points, and they did today. You look at their XG figure. In, in some ways, Allison prevented that from being a win for Tottenham. He had a brilliant game, made saves at pivotal moments despite making a big mistake in the game. And I think Spurs, right now Arsenal are four points clear in the Champions League race, so they're looking at the table as a little bit of a fool's errand at the moment, given the number of postponed games due to COVID. Um, but... I would not be surprised if Spurs are, are, are the, you know, along with Manchester United, big contenders to finish in that top four spot because I'd pretty well say that those top three teams, City, Chelsea, and Liverpool, are going to be there. I think that's a real fight between the other, quote, big six teams for that last spot. It actually could be more interesting than I thought it might be, but like I guess that's also what happens when you make a coaching change in season, as Manchester United have done and now as Spurs have done. You know, and, and Arsenal, I still think has some promising things going on there, even though Aubameyang seems like he's very much on his way out at the moment. I mean, Arsenal cannot stop handing out terrible long-term extensions to players in their 30s. (laughs) Like, can they stop? Like, it's not good for you, Arsenal. You're building a good young team. You seem to have an identity now. Why do you keep handing out such awful contracts? And that's why, like, when people say that, you know, and, and we're going to talk about it in a second, that the big teams are dominating Europe. Like, at the very least in England, there are six clubs with the financial might, and probably more when you think about, you know, the deep pockets that Everton have, the deep pockets that Newcastle United have now. Leicester have certainly been really competitive in the last few years with, you know, some wealthy owners as well. Like, Arsenal have the money to be up there. They just spend it poorly. Or at least they have been for several years now. And Arsenal, now, they, they're heading in a good direction. They beat a Leeds team that were have been woeful lately. Oh, my yeah. God, have they been bad. And look, I feel bad for Marcelo Bielsa because he's basically got eight fit senior players uh, to, for, for his team. But they've been dreadful. But Arsenal are putting together wins against the lower echelon of the league right now. They weren't able to do that in recent years. They are building towards a positive direction. They have several good stories in their playing squad of promising young players that are coming through and so arsenal are kind of starting to find their feet yeah and there's one other thing i want to say about liverpool and i guess this will extend to europe as well is that we've been talking about a three-team race all season long in the premier league and now chelsea has fallen six points behind man city and chelsea just seems to be coughing up points fairly regularly now and they've been dealing with player absences as well but um it's just not happening right now for chelsea in the league you can kind of feel it slipping away a little bit and honestly with liverpool getting only a tie on sunday they're now three points behind man city which like just looks really good right now it's not that liverpool looks bad overall it's just that i can see it potentially slipping away even for them especially with africa cup of nations coming if that goes ahead mane salah potentially gone for a while um and depth being important for everybody right now with the covid situation and so you combine that you look around europe at the top leagues bayern munich has a nine point lead in germany that race seems over real madrid is up six points in spain but that's on Sevilla and like Atletico and Barca are just miles behind at this point. It seems like Real Madrid's going to run away with, with La Liga in Italy. Inter is up four now, but I think that's sort of deceiving because Inter has made up so much ground that I can see Inter totally running away with, with the Scudetto. 
uh, PSG up 13 points in France. And I don't know, man. Like, I, I'm starting to think that there might not be a title race in any of these countries this season. Yeah, I think I think the England one is still yet to be determined. Liverpool only three points off. Uh, I, I just think they'll have enough to survive the Cup of Nations thing. Every time we talk about their absence of players, they seem to come through just well enough. Um, but... I do think that in the overall, this is not a good look for this year. I think that Italy race would be pretty close too. But again, I think in England, there's an opportunity for, you know, Chelsea have spent a shed load of money. You know, Liverpool, they they you know I, they actually do it pretty well considering that they haven't really gone and spent a huge amount in the last couple of years. But Arsenal, I think they're the biggest spenders in the transfer window this year in, in all of Europe. Arsenal should be up there. Manchester United went for Sancho, Varane, and Ronaldo. They should be up there. It's about how well these clubs are run. I think Spain is kind of the ultimate example of this because I don't think Real are that good. And right. they're, fly- they're, they're flying at the top of La Liga because Atletico are a shambles. They, I mean, they, they have these incredibly expensive talents that they brought in and they can't score any goals. They're 14 points adrift. And we know what a mess Barcelona are. That's nothing but their own doing. Like, they they turn over billions of euros a year. They make a lot of money. It just goes all flying out the door. You know, Juventus has spent a ton of money in the last few years with these kind of bizarre transfer dealings. Juventus should not be 12 points adrift of the title in Italy. They've just been poorly run for the last few years. So I don't think it's necessarily that there's an imbalance and that there's a a great crisis of, you know, the ownership of these clubs is is too much more wealthy than everyone else. I think there's some poorly run clubs at the moment. COVID exacerbated some problems that were in the foundations of some of these clubs and kind of ripped them wide open. And we're seeing some of these poorly run clubs struggling and way further behind than they should be. So I'm I'm not as down on it as you are, but uh, I also understand that this year there's really probably not going to be a whole lot of drama in many of the major competitions, which means that it's kind of going to be a Champions League kind of year. But who knows if even those big clubs start dominating the Champions League too. I do want to be clear here that like I want there to be races, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of bummed out when I look around. Europe right now. And I do think that England does have a chance to, to be competitive at the top and potentially Italy, but I'm pretty disappointed with a lot, like just about every Italian team near the top lately, except Inter, because that's a team that I thought was going to be down with the guys that they'd lost, the coach that they lost, and they've got it going right now. And I know mm-hmm. that Napoli got a big win at Milan on Sunday, and, and that's good for them. But Napoli's been struggling as well. So just a an interesting time. Yeah. We're, not, we're not even to Christmas yet. I want there to be races. Yeah, and especially in England, where we thought we were definitely getting one. Chelsea, in midweek against Everton, came up against a team that was bunkering against the ball and somehow couldn't score. They dominated a first half and couldn't get a goal. Um, and then City just looked like a machine right now. And I know that the last couple games have probably been against the two worst form teams in the league in Leeds and in Newcastle, but some of the performances they put in were like, I, I, I've watched them every week. I've, I've said before on the show that I'm a fan, and like I know within 15 minutes whether you're getting good city or bad city, or like or city that will struggle, and every week it seems it's like, oh no, this is going to be easy. This is going to be a cakewalk. Even if they don't score a goal, they just are so oppressive from a defensive... It's actually their defense. I know that everyone talks about the Pep Guardiola system 
and and you know how good they are creating chances and how good they are with the ball, but it's their pressing that is so good. They've given away nine goals this season. Yeah. Nine. And they just smother teams to the point where you see like after an hour, they just kind of want to give up. It's incredible how good they are from a defensive point of view. So uh, I, I I understand that kind of feeling or, man, I, I think City are going to run away with this even as good as those other two teams are. All right, Chris. Thanks as always. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Amanda Vandervoort and Dr. Celine Gounder, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. 